Hello, guys. It's everything done lightly. A lot happening. Hope you go over to the Substack. Check us out. I hope you go and look at our podcasts here. Go look at our www.first-things.org. I am thankful to bring you Andrew Kern today. Founder and, uh, well, all around sort of the, the mind and soul behind Circe Institute, the Center for Independent Research on Classical Education. If you are a parent or a human, you should listen to this talk. Education is the conversation. And wow, it's good stuff. When we sign off, I got some information for you. I'd love for you to hear. But right now, Andrew Kern and this is my boy, Greg Gilbertson, bringing us a little bit of the Watar song, a little bit of the heavy things done lightly. Andrew Kern is with us from Circe Institute. Did I say Circe right? I never, is it Circe? Like, did I say it right? Depends what, what region you're from. If you're Greek, you got to say Kirke. Kirke, yeah, you're right. If you're from Wisconsin, you'll probably say Circe. If you're from Kentucky, you might say Circe. We don't worry about it. Just don't say do, circle. Yeah, no, circle's no good. How do you hear <laughs> it in your head when you're when you're dreaming oh. of all of the things that you're accomplishing in the world? Circe, I think Circe. Circe? Yeah. Right, here's a toast. I want ah. a toast because we shared Art of Tamada together. Guys, this is Andrew Kern, uh, founder. He's just the guy behind Circe Institute, which we're going to talk about today. Just but, uh just a guy, but they showed up out of the blue to Art Automata. Not out of the blue. I mean, we knew you were coming, <laughs> but I kind of like if you just crashed it. That'd have been better. <laughs> but but uh, he and his son and um, just some good people. Well, actually, Matthew didn't come, but uh, man. Anyway, we had this crew, and now we're besties. And I want to give a toast to serendipity and to gratitude uh, for paying attention to things and then making them happen in a way where. Uh, we all benefit from them. You helped us by showing up. So to to you guys and to that moment of serendipity, Gagi Marjos. So this is uh, Heavy Things Lightly. We're trying to figure out old and new world. And then here come Cersei Institute people, you in particular, an author and a human being trying to offer classical education resources and and really just the essence of it to the world and does anybody care that's my first question <laughs> does anybody care let me make a distinction between names and things then if you ask that question because that's a good question if you say the word classical edu the words classical education some people get excited and some people get turned off my contention however is that if you're dealing with the thing classical education it's what everybody wants when it comes to education mm -hmm. until they grow up it. and, and need, need, you know, get scared, but free people want classical education. And you see it in the way they, they clamor and kind of consume what you guys are doing. Cause you're still, you're here and doing amazing things. So it must be that there's proof in the concept. Yeah. Well, that's nice of you to say it that way, um, that they're clamoring. <laughs> um, but we do find that when, well, there's a price to it. Okay. So, so there's the modern mind is very driven by methods and mechanisms and formulas and the quick buck. 
classical education isn't going to give you methods, mechanisms, and formulas in the quick buck. Mm. So there is a, there's a price that people have to pay. And for some people, it's not worth the price, I would say. But in general, the people that we've been able to work with and that have, let's say, engaged it, embraced it, they are, they're just like I have been transformed by it. Yeah. yeah. What's transforming about it in your own, huh. in your own experience? Well, wow, you ask good questions. Um, the way we define classical education here at Circe is that it's the cultivation of wisdom and virtue by nourishing the soul on the true, the good, and the beautiful. Hmm. And there's more to it, of course, but, but that simple framework if you just think of it that way, it's almost like the sufficient answer to your question. But what's transforming about it? When you really read a book, let's say a Chronicles of Narnia or a Tolkien um, or Homer, you just aren't the same person when you're done reading it. And it's not that you've been persuaded to believe something. It's that you see the world differently. And it's that you've been fed it's that it's that you're healthier. Um, it's that you have you become something like what you've read, wow. as odd as that might sound. And that all of that leads to a transformation. And so if you keep doing that and then you discuss it with people like you and I are doing right now, this is a huge part of the whole experience. Like right now, you and I are encountering classical education because you said, what do you mean by that? And then you asked. Then you then you asked me to explain myself, right? That's a classical thing to do. So right? good. And so so right now we are we are classically educating each other through friendship and through discussion, and that's the essence of classical education. And so so what's transformative about it is that it it deepens your your soul and enriches it. It, it makes you. I, I have often said that the goal of education is to be a good friend. And people then they 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 listen to that and say, oh, that's you know funny, ha ha. But that's what Aristotle says, and that's what Cicero says. You know, the the the, the one of my one of the best books in the whole classical tradition is by Cicero, and it's called De Amicitia, which is Latin for on friendship. And at the very last paragraph of his, his it's a dialogue actually, a bunch of friends talking, and at the very last paragraph of the text goes like this. Finally. One piece of advice on parting. Virtue, without which friendship is impossible, is the greatest of all things. But next to virtue, and to virtue alone, the greatest of all things is friendship. Now, think about that. For 25, for 2,000 years, anybody in the Western world who went to school and got educated probably had to learn that in Latin. Well, it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been first year. They probably had to learn that in Latin. And then they had to translate it into their language, which mm -hmm. means they had to think about it. Yeah. And what they were thinking about is one of the richest thoughts any human being has ever expressed. I mean, think about it. Virtue, without which friendship is impossible, is the greatest of all things. Okay, as soon as you hear that phrase, you're in, right? You want, you want what he's talking about. And I know that because I've taught high school and well, the very first year I started teaching, which was 1993 in a school setting, I had my class read that. 
And I taught them a highlighting system for what it's worth, where blue would be something they really liked. And one of the girls in the class, she wanted to highlight the whole thing in blue and put it in frames and put it on her wall. Like she wanted to just think about that book for the rest (laughs) of her life. That didn't happen to me in school when I read textbooks. But in a classical school, in the classical tradition, you don't read textbooks. You read the great books. And they're great books because they say great things and they say them really well. Right. And that's another element of how, why is it transformative? Because I'm, I didn't read that as a child, right? I didn't read those lines as a child. I wish I had, Hmm. I believed it. I knew it as a child. I knew that virtue is what makes friendship possible, but I never thought the thought, right? My soul knew it, but I never thought it. And man, if I could have thought that, how much better could my life have been if I could have actually thought that thought that virtue without which friendship is impossible is the greatest of all things. What kid doesn't value friendship? Some might argue that's you're describing something not necessarily meant for a system, for a school. You might, not I might argue system? that. Yeah. Here's what I mean. Like my friends in Mali, West Africa, I think mm-hmm. they intuit that. Mm-hmm. Now they haven't read Aristotle. But I think they intuit that I need to slow down, not even need to slow down, because that would imply they were already speeded up. But mm-hmm. it's like the life is is like I'm going to do this because I I need this for my life, which is to bear your burden, and so I'm just going to do it. It's it's all mm-hmm. unspoken. But now you're talking about classical education, and everybody in this podcast is going to hear education as system, um, as something ah. that I'm I'm put into. In order to do that, so why would I even go to school for that? What? What? I don't get that. Wow, that's. I mean, that. Okay, this is. This is. All right, I told you. I told you beforehand <laughs> that I'm. I'm trying to. I'm working on like a treatise. I'm trying to. I'm trying to summarize my thoughts from the last thirty years. And You're in that treatise, I am. Yeah, and you, it'll you, be done in this summer, the end of May. Guys, we want Andrew to write this book, and we can't wait to read it. This guy's filled Thank with, you. we met each other, we know each other, but go ahead. I can't wait to hear this, this answer. I want to hear Well, this. in the middle of it or somewhere in it, it's going to make a case that there was this terrible, well, there was a great transition that took place, right? And, and it happened, education didn't fall apart in the 60s, right? It didn't fall apart in the 90s. I love reading like on Facebook or, 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 or um, X or whatever, and people will talk about the education that they got as a child as though that was a golden age, or else it'll be the generation <laughs> right before them. Like that was the, the golden 90s. age. Right. Yeah. Well, the 70s yeah, and, 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 and so good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in the seventies and I will say this, I had some really good teachers, mm-hmm. some wonderful teachers, and we read some really good books. Um, I even listened to some good music, but I didn't get a good education. And the people that that wanted to go back to the fifties would not did not get a good education. Education didn't fall apart in the fifties or sixties or seventies or because of World War II or whatever. Education in America has never been very good, mm. but it especially fell apart. There was there was a big battle in eighteen eighty to nineteen twenty. There was a culture wide battle going on about education, and you could say it was between the classical educators. And the progressives. I think a more accurate way to put it would be is between traditionalists and, and, and progressives. Mm. And, and the progressives won that battle so totally, so completely, 
that from 1920 to the present day, classical education has tried desperately to find corners in a college every now and again. It's just a, it tries to dig, it tries to dig a, a foxhole and survive. Education in America, I say, has never been really good, although up until the rebel, up until about 1800, it was pretty good, right? And, hmm. and in fact, compared to nowadays, it was phenomenally good. You can do, in fact, forgive me for this, because I don't want to lose sight of the question, but just I like quickly. This. I like this rebel. You can divide American history into three periods, both culturally and pedagogically, okay? There's the, there's the period up to, let's say, 1800. In a way, you could say up to the revolution, but let's say 1800. And that's the period that we could, we could call, Paige Smith does in fact call it, the classical and Christian period. The greatest achievement of the classical and Christian period was the U.S. Constitution. Okay. And, and during that period, not very many people went to school. Well, I take that back. In Massachusetts, almost everybody did. Literacy in Massachusetts was like 98%. Um, wow. In the 18th century, even. Yeah, colossally better than today. And then, but in the South, it wasn't by any means. Mm -hmm. But during that time period, education was very local and it was very classical. But what you got educated for at that time was to become a leader in society. That meant a minister. It meant um, a local, polit not politician so much, but a statesman, because they didn't really do politics like we do. Um, it, it, it meant taking leadership in society. That's what you got educated for. That's why you went to school. Then what happens is in the 19th century, America becomes extremely conscious of itself as a country. And so education shifts from being a classical and Christian form of education to being, I'm going to call it a traditional in a limited sense. I don't mean in a, you know, the capital T sense, mm -hmm. but in the sense that we now are a community and education is education is for the sake of the community. Yeah, that's right. That's the German model, right? On some level, coming. Um, in. Is that going to come? That's an extreme later? version of it. Because what I'm yeah. what I'm suggesting here is that in the in the 18th century, if you went to school, it was for the community. But the way you were going to serve your community was by becoming virtuous. Okay, the goal was wisdom and virtue. In the 19th century, it's for the community, and the way you're going to serve your community is by knowing its story. All right. So, so now the tradition kind of becomes an end in itself. Now, that's a hyper oversimplified way of putting it. But but the shift is taking place. It's so that you can say, I am an American. And, yeah, and right. I can see why, right. because in the 19th century, the America was very proud to be Americans. Right. right. Country songs were coming out. I'm proud to be an American. And then and nobody had yet sung Born in the USA. And then on the 4th of July, they play it not knowing that it's an anti-American song. It's so funny. But anyway, so so in the 19th century, it's very patriotic, very traditional. But the orientation is now not toward, let's say, internal wisdom for the sake of the community. But now it's toward the community as a, as a goal. Now, eventually, what that leads to is, well, it takes place within the Industrial Revolution. And that's when the notorious John Dewey comes along and brings in a whole new philosophy of existence and a whole new approach to education. And you said earlier on, everybody who's listening to your podcast, when they hear the word education, are going to think about a system. That's because they've all been educated under John Dewey. Yeah. Okay. It was John Dewey who started the National Education Association, which is the teachers union. It was John Dewey who started the, the systems of, of, of public schooling. 
And by the time you got to the 50s, which was Dewey died, I think it was 1948. But the, when you get to the 50s, then after World War II, the American mindset is, hey, look what we were able to do. We were able to conquer the world and defeat the Japanese and defeat the Nazis by being so superior in our industry and by being so well managed. So what happens is all these soldiers come home. They get the GI Bill, of course, which destroys college education. It's good for the students, some of them who should have been there, but it destroys the system. And then secondly, they take all these local schools and they consolidate them, right? And now, now the administration of the school becomes more important than the education of the children. And the other thing that's crucial is in 1946, in, in, the, in the nine months between September of 1945 and, well, let's just say to the middle of 1946, every woman in America had a baby, maybe two or three even. <laughs> there was a boom. <laughs> but for some reason, that system that they put in place for education didn't even notice that all these babies were born. And five years later, trillions of babies grabbed the lunchbox paper bag and walked down to their local kindergarten and the teachers walked to the door and screamed at the number of children who arrived. Yeah, they they had had five years to prepare and they didn't bother. And that led to the rise of the textbook. Okay. And the textbook is one of the most destructive forces in America and in education. Yeah, now, I mean. instead of reading a great book like Cicero, you, you can't, you, you have to teach your proof the classroom now, right? If you've got all these children, you have to administer all those children and you have to make the teacher not harm them. And so you have to replace the teacher. Well, what you have to do is convert the teacher into an administrator of information on behalf of yeah, the data manager. Yeah, data manager. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then information into the data point, right? And so that, so that leads to the explosion. And then, of course, it leads to the explosion of administration. And then it leads to the textbook publishing companies. I mean, there were textbooks in the 30s and 40s but go get some. I've read them. They're pretty good, right? Because mm -hmm. they're, they're innocent still. But in the 50s, they've discovered, hey, you know what? If we can replace the teachers, we can make a fortune off these books. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they replace them every five years. So the whole, every school in the country has to buy the new textbooks because they added four paragraphs. You know, and and, and nobody, nobody ever looks at, I mean, I remember my history textbook. My brother had one and then I had another because they changed between my, he was two years older than me. And they changed the history textbook. And what was the change? I, it was a, in those days, 35, 40 bucks, you know, to, for each book. They added a paragraph at the end that we never got to. Yep. I, I, I taught history for 15 years. In okay. So you know setting. what I'm talking about. And I'd be like, something's not right here because this is the same book. And why is it also yeah. $78? What's happening? It's because there? you have a monopoly. That's why. Because you have a government mandated monopoly on education. And, and, and Pearson... And I, I mean, I discovered about 10 or 15 years, 20 years ago now, it, it was it, it happened that two German publishing companies bought all the American text, major American textbook publishing companies. I think one was called Bertelsmann, and I can't remember for sure. It's 20 years ago now. But all of a sudden, American textbooks were outsourced to a country that didn't even know it. And 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 get this now, Pearson oh, crazy. is the That's number crazy. one publishing company, right? They're also the college owners of the college board. So now you have assessment that is administratively is driven for the sake of the publisher of the textbooks. Now, again, 
I'm oversimplifying, but not by as much as I not wish really. I was. Not really. Well, you're right. I'm not very much, but you're I want to be really. polite. This is the experience. We started a school down in Florida and we tried to embrace classical education. That's one of my questions for you. Yeah. Is this community. So I got about four questions. Let, let's go this road and then I'll come back to the elitism question. Because Well, I'm still in the middle of the, this, this other question. Though. Keep going. All right. Finish it up. I love it. Because I'm talking about this great transition, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Come, so, come back so to this. So people might be inversion. hearing me saying, sorry, people might be hearing me saying classical education is the 50s. I'm not. They might be hearing me saying it's the 1890s. That would be better, but that's not it. They might be hearing me saying it's the 18th century. I'm not. What I'm saying is classical education was metaphysically and philosophically undercut and badly damaged in the 16th century. Okay, And what happened was the world went through a massive inversion. And I would go so far as to say, now I'm a Christian, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and I would go so far as to say that what happened, I could almost blame the fall of Constantinople. I, I think that is accurate. But anyway, in amazing. that era, what happens is the Western mind begins to, uh, it begins to look for a method. Okay, it, 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 up until this time, the easiest way to put it is this, up until this time, People believed we lived in a cosmos, and they believed that we were the image of God. As images, we were analogical beings, right? An image is an analogy, okay? And the world itself was an analogical cosmos. That is to say, it was an image, and it was meaningful. But by the time you get to 1600, or certainly 1700, now you don't live in a cosmos anymore. At best, you live in a universe. Mm -hmm. You no longer believe in nature, you now believe in something like chaos or maybe nothing. You no longer believe in the logos, right? You've now converted logos, nice Greek word, to nomen, a nice Latin word. In other words, you shifted from logos to nominalism, right? From, from a real world that's knowable to an unreal world that's just a, a, a creation of our own minds. Yeah, and people gnosis. don't realize the extent mm -hmm. to which what, what, what we're teaching, what we have been teaching children in schools for centuries is that the world they live in isn't knowable and that and that they can't know it so therefore they have to generate their own truth okay and that they now have a will and an identity that they are responsible to establish themselves this did not happen with transgenderism it took 400 years for that Beautiful. kind of catastrophe to happen now i got to just say this I believe in something absolutely positive. I believe we're going through a major transition. Uh, I mean, a, a, a half millennial, maybe a two millennial transition. The, the enlightenment um, breakdown, the fragmentation of the European mind from the 16th and 17th century, I believe is coming to an end. It's, it's reached its, its, um, its fullness in chaos, right? So, so, Artificial intelligence, one of the most ridiculously named things in the history of the world, as though there could be artificial intelligence. Right? That sort of thing is the is the end game of the the mistakes from the 1600s. And so I believe that we're now we're going through a transition. The trouble, of course, is transitions are always really hard. But we're going through a transition into a world that if we pray well. And if we get back to Christ the Logos as the foundation of thought, and if we are humble, 
I believe we could be ushering in a, a new 500 year age of, of new insight and a more mature insight than, than we've had for the last maybe, maybe 1500 years. So the inversion, I, Andrew, this is so fast, fascinating. The inversion in some ways, the destruction of what have has happened is now leading to a, an invitation to something oh, like, good. like fixing it, something like um, classical education. It's, it's yes. the time for that. Yes, it's time. Yes. In fact, I, I'm, I'll be starting a podcast on which I'll inter, in, invite you to for an interview. I would love it. And eventually, I don't know when I'm starting it yet, but just everybody be warned, <laughs> run. I'm going to call it Minerva's Owl. And the reason which I'm is, calling it Minerva's your, Owl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to did hear I tell this. you about this? No, but I, I looked in, I, I saw some of your blogs there in Minerva's Owl, oh, but I, didn't, okay. I don't know the reason for it. I want to hear this. Okay, so the reason for that is this. Georg Hegel, the German philosopher, famously said, the owl of Minerva only flies at dusk. And what he was saying is, if you, if you know who Minerva is, she's the goddess of wisdom. She's Athena, right? The Roman name for Athena. Mm -hmm. And the owl is a symbol of wisdom, right? Well, what, what Hegel is saying is wisdom only makes it, well, basically what he's saying is wisdom only makes itself available when it's too late. <laughs> um, I, I don't know exactly what he means, but the way I take it is this. We are living at the end of an age. At the end of the day, you know things that you didn't know at the beginning, that you couldn't have known at the beginning. In a similar way, at the end of an age, you have no choice but to know things that you didn't need to know even 50 years ago. For example, nobody seems to know what a man or a woman is anymore, hmm. right? Nobody wondered 50 years ago. And the reason we now have to know something so basic is because the age is coming to an end. And so there are things that are becoming very vivid and very clear to us that in the past, nobody needed to know. They just lived day to day. And that, of course, extends over a period of time. But the practical application to me is this. After dusk comes nightfall. And that's the dark. That's the transition. But after nightfall comes dawn. That's right. And if those folks who wake up in the morning have to start from scratch, God have mercy. What we have to do now, John, is we have to, all those things that are becoming very vivid and clear to us now because they have to, it's not smartness, it's necessity, right? Right. Things right. that we are forced to know philosophically, theologically, metaphysically, we got to note it, right? We got to preserve it. And we have to do so in a way that we can hand it off to the people who are going to wake up in the morning. And that's the function of education today, is we have to preserve the wisdom that has been that has been there the whole time, but now is flying crazily all over the place. We got to capture it. And my goal is to catch the owl of Minerva and put it in a cage so that all night long, she sings to my children and grandchildren so that when they wake up in the morning, all they have to do is walk over to the cage and say, what's that mean again? And they'll, they'll have that running start for a new age. Now it's not going to be utopia, right? Cause one of the things that we're having to acknowledge that, that, that is so painful is that while Augustine was a bit extreme, he wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> His dark view of the human soul, we're seeing that all over Twitter. 
right? They put yeah. that they put that idiotic program together, thinking that it would be good for mankind to be able to just share information anonymously with each other, right? I mean, what kind of child would think that thought, right? The, the infantile minds behind the technologies that we're forced to use nowadays. Well, we're not forced to so much, but that that the infant the infantilism that that drives the technologies is unfathomable. But what it's revealing to us is mankind can't be trusted. Mankind has to be held accountable. Mankind can be trusted if he's responsible for what he says and does. But if he's not, then he can't be trusted. You can't put on the ring of Gyges, you know, you can't put on, if you put on the ring, you become Gollum, right? If you, if you hide behind an anonymity, you destroy things. And that's one of the things we're learning is that you, you have to, you have to localize yourself. You have to be in your place. You have to be responsible for the person next to you and for yourself and for the ground under you, for the room you live in, for the books that you're reading. And you, you got to break out of this fantasy of this digital realm that's utopian and that, that says, hey, we can make everything good by removing friction. No, God was smart when he made the world. He made it frictionful <laughs> so that yeah. we can stay, yeah. so that we can stop and think, right? So that we can slow down and think and talk to each other. Well, um, you made me think that the apostles who didn't even know themselves as that on that first night near the tomb, oh yeah, they had to stand there and stay just close enough that the night, the three night, the two nights could pass. The, in other words. Yeah. The diavolos, the disintegration had to happen, but there had to be watchers. There had to be someone who would withstand the night. Um, so in, oh, in the good. resurrection, John, there was someone good. to speak to. There was someone, because Christ could then go and meet. Who is he going to meet if everyone ran? And so we, you're saying we have to withstand the night. We have to wait for the resurrection. We have to wait for the resurrection. And either that's going to be the end of the creed, the, the, you know, the last line in the creed, not the end, but the, the last line in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Maybe that's what we're going to experience. Maybe this is the world coming to a new world. But if it's not, God is not sleeping, right? If right. the Lord dies, and he only did once and never will again, but when he died, he conquered his enemies, and what, right. what, what I believe is necessary now is that a, a new age of dying with Christ That's right. is what, what we have which to is, do. Which is really just, it's just the mechanics of reality. It's, Peugeot is often talking about this. It's just the mechanics of how reality works. Is we, we have to have the diabolos in order to have the symbolos. We have to have the disintegration uh -huh. in order to have the, 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 the remembering. And so... And so what you're describing is, I think, a type of wisdom that was more obvious to the people from the old world pre-enlightenment. Well, I think I it's more even... obvious, like you said before, to people in Mali, right? We're so oh. arrogant in America. We, we destroy our own families for a piece of, for a chocolate cake, right? And then we look and we feel superior because we can put on a better football game than the people in Mali, yeah, although right, their soccer right. teams could probably beat ours. Well, they're getting you know, better. What, what is, they, have, they have community, right? They meet at the table. We don't even meet at the table as a culture. Yeah. We, don't, we get mad if we have to sit still at a table. And then we go, oh, we're, 
I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. Look, if you're sad and depressed, there could be many reasons for it. But this is my advice to a person who's sad. Find a table and sit down at it. And then whether you put a coffee in front of you or a cinnamon bun or something, put something in front of you and then invite somebody to join you. Maybe, maybe even get, maybe go to Panera and, and buy a cup of coffee and two cinnamon buns, two cups of coffee and two cinnamon buns and put oh, one cinnamon that. bun on the opposite side and just wait to see if somebody joins you. I don't I know. Do it I five times that. and see what, in other words, if you're sad, there's a reason the word sad so often goes with the word lonely, right? Sad and lonely. There is, I believe in all sadness, there's some degree of loneliness and disconnectedness. And we have, we are at the tail end of an age of massive fragmentation. The mm. cosmos has broken up. The mind has broken up. Community has broken up. And the goal of the, at the Circe Institute, our entire goal is to restore the unity that's been broken, to, to, to try to restore the harmony. I don't mean the harmony like utopian in that sense, but to restore the, to restore the habits of mm. harmony that well, used to be the goal of education. Well, just your description of education is acquiring virtue in order to have a friendship. I mean, like, <laughs> by the way, very few people, very few people have ever identified, I'm talking about in, you know, in our America today, 2020s to get a job they can't exactly they can't even wrap their head around what you just said i saw a real shift with the cell phones a real shift i used to teach a course called the history of love to high schoolers um starting in 2004 and then by 2013 for 10 years or eight years no one asked why we're doing this class at first they may say mm -hmm. i don't really get this class but they meant i don't get the class for the sake of the class by 2, 14, mm -hmm. 15, 16, 18 year old, by the way, studying the history of love. Okay. Very, just on its face. Like what, what's the problem? That's kind of weird and interesting, but I'm telling you two, 13, 14, 15, 16. The question was, is this is not relevant to my college application. Right. And they were serious I'm, about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised that it took that long. By the way, one of my favorite college classes I ever took was called the myths of love. And it, oh, it was like that. It went back to the, to the, you know, the ancient, well, it started with the Bible and worked its way all the way up to Evita. And it, and really? it, we looked at medieval mythologies of love and Cupid and Psyche, and it was awesome. So a history of love is what a great thing to think about. But you're right. The, the kids have been conditioned by their hovering parents to, from the, their, their terrified parents from the time they were four to think that the reason you go, the reason you do this useless, mindless, mind-numbing, butt-killing activity for seven, eight hours a day and feel your dignity seep out of your soul all day long so that you can do something in the evening to restore your humanity, which usually means you know rebelling against something. The reason you are doing this is so that when you are done, you can do it for a few more years and get a job, right? And and the 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 the... The, re the drive behind that, okay, it's a self-fulfilling fear, okay? And what I mean by that is, is, is at multiple levels, right? It, you can scale it like what something Jonathan Pajot would easily see. Mm -hmm. You can scale this where there's the individual is scared. And so he goes to school for no other reason that he thinks if he doesn't, his life's going to be ruined. I want to just interrupt myself for a moment here and say that if my mom, when I was a kid, had got up in the morning 
and said, today you have to read these books and then gone to work and then left me alone, I would have got a better education and in less trouble than happened to me at school. Now, I will say, I say that because my mom would have made me, like she would have checked to see what I did, yeah. but also because I was a catastrophe in school. I, I think I flunked four classes in ninth grade and they still what moved me up. What was going on? You're not, you're not a dummy. What was going on? What was the actual spiritual rebellion? What was it? Oh, can you identify it then? That's Could so good. So, so what I can tell you, that I'm glad you said spiritual rebellion because between my sophomore and junior year, I did have one of those after that summer camp experiences where, you know, the spirit of God just convicted me of my sin. And so I had a, I had a, I want to follow Jesus moment. And so then I go back to school that fall and I got almost straight A's for one oh, report that's card. that's interesting. But another thing that happened that, that quarter when I got all A's but one B was I had a job that I had to work 35 hours a week, right? Whereas, whereas most of the time I'm going, I'm going to school wasting unbelievable amounts of time, right? Doing as little homework as I possibly could, then coming home and not having a job. Uh, I was on swim team, so that, you know, kept me somewhat busy, but I mean, what, what was, I had to, I had to fill the time. Right. And so, yeah. So I was, I was living, um, now I had a, I had a great church and I had great friends from church and I was really into sports. Who knows what I would have done if it weren't for that. But, but the, the meaningless of the system that I was in, right. I felt it in my spirit and I rebelled against that right now. I studied hard for like youth group Bible studies because we had, we, again, we had great youth group. We would, we would, we would sit and argue about the book of Daniel or you know, the book of Romans for, for a couple hours on a Saturday night. It was, it was fabulous. So um, what, what a picture you're painting of this crazy nerd who was failing class. Nerd. Interesting. <laughs> well, I was I cool, that, man. I was a class I, clown. I, I say that with I, love though. I say that with love because you're really describing a bit of what my, my, my crazy brother, brother Peter, he, he would fail classes randomly. He would like fail Spanish and then he would fail history. And then you would look and it was just because he had a beef with that teacher. Oh, interesting. About, yeah. It was all about the personal relationship. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting point too. Cause what did happen when my, when I was, this is, see my, my biggest concern is the system, right? The fact that there is a system and that that's what people think of when they think of education, that's yeah. a catastrophe. You have to ask yourself, what is happening to my poor child when they're in that system? It's, it's like putting a kid on an assembly line and letting the machines mold them. I don't want my kids molded. So, so anyway, so when I was in school, twice my teachers went on strike for a long time. Like, I, I, I mean, as a kid, a long time as a day. But I think it was like six weeks when I was in wow, wow. eighth or ninth grade. And, and they had like voluntary classes. You, you could go to school because they knew we didn't have anything to do. So, so some of the teachers were strike breakers and they would come in and they'd supervise us while we danced and stuff. It was, which I can't even do. So it, it was ridiculous. But what I remember is I remember at that, I remember getting into high school and I would hear people say, your schooling, your education is the most important thing about your childhood. And I would think to my, or feel if I didn't think, 
because it's hard to know. I'm 60 now. It's hard to know what I actually thought. Right. But, but what I carried with me is, okay, so what you're telling me is the most important thing in my life, the thing that's going to determine my future was not important enough for you to come to work and do. <laughs> right. So, so, so what am I going to take? Now I'm thinking like a child. I get that. I get that. You know, there's much more comp, but, but the system, whether it's people, whether the system failed me, yeah, you, and you can't, you know, that's, that's what um, Hannah Arendt says about the, the, the Nazis, right, is the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. If you can't fight against a system that's destroying children, then what on earth can you fight against? And if you don't think education is destroying children in America, what world are you looking at? Yeah. Right. They're, they are literally, literally going to doctors and getting their bodies torn apart. Literally. Yeah. The suicide rate is now something like one in 12 kids tries to kill himself and and they're getting better at it, right? Schools, you can't just What's say, oh, happen? well, we only have them. In, you, look, you've got the majority of the time and the curriculum and the system and the way you teach is sucking the souls out of those children. And if no you doubt. would say to those kids at the beginning of the school year, listen, I'm going to teach you this year because the most important thing about you is your friendships. And your friendships need you to become virtuous. Let's go from there. Everything would change instantaneously. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I in fact, we tried to do that in these little experiments of education that yeah. I got involved with. Yeah. And we tried. So that's a question that goes back. How do you know when a community's ready mm. to adopt classical education? Because our school wasn't. We tried on some levels to make that personal. Thing I'd have to have I'd have to be able to ask you questions that you don't want asked on the air about that particular community because it's going to be different everywhere. I but see. but I would say this that that there are many 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 reasons why American parents are afraid. Okay, and if I've come across like I'm attacking parents, please forgive me because because I understand the fears that American parents have. The economy is getting so tightened. And if you don't get in, supposedly, if you don't get into college, you know, your life is going to be ruined. And, you know, obviously the fact that plumbers make as much as lawyers in America challenges that. But if, if we, we believe that we have to be in the system, right? And once, once you believe that you have to be in the system, then it's terrifying to not be in the system. That's there's right. no promises. That's right. There's no guarantees. But the trouble is what you're counting on is the system. Well, the system changes constantly and the and the the economy for which the job, the school system is capable of preparing children isn't the economy they're going to grow up into. Right. That's That's what technology has done. And so so I think there's a there's a I'm going to oversimplify and put it this way. A community is ready for a classical education when enough parents, which is probably four or five couples, have faith that guides them instead of fear. Now that that can sound really caustic. That can sound like really nasty. And I, I don't actually think there's a group over here that has faith and a group over here that's fearful. All of us are filled with fear and all of us have some degree of faith. And so what it is, is it's a question of, is there enough faith in us struggling broken people? Is there enough to give it a shot? And then and then is there enough faith to, to genuinely believe that Christ the Logos is our teacher and he illumines every man who comes into the world? Is there enough faith to believe that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
all these other things will be added to us. We will not be ashamed. We will not go naked. We will not go hungry. We might be martyred, though. Is there enough faith? It's not, it's not a matter of either or, right? I just, I, I really want to emphasize this so much that it's just not, a, in fact, that's, what, pause, <laughs> bracket this. But one of the most crucial things in my view about classical education is it teaches the art of deliberation. Okay, and mm-hmm. deliberation breaks down the notion of the either or. It acknowledges that some things are binary because some things are binary, male and female, for example. But but when we're making decisions, it's almost never binary. It's almost always is there enough of this? It's a matter of proportion. Yeah. And so, so when we deliberate, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Right. And that means that means proportion and it means it means compromise. It doesn't necessarily mean compromise of principle. It might mean compromise of how a principle applies in this circumstance. That's right. That's right. And it might mean, I, I think if there's two kinds of compromise, right? There's, there's, let's, I want to climb Mount Everest. Okay. And I get up to the, what's that called? The the station where you get your yeah, stuff. Um, base camp or something. Base camp. Okay. I get up to base camp. All right. And I, and I'm the first guy there, let's say I'm climbing up Mount Everest and it's really way far up. And I leave, I see this area where there's all kinds of water and it's really nice. Okay. And so I, so I stop and I get everything I need. And now I have a decision to make. This is kind of cool. Should I stop here? Or should I take what I've got here and go up to Everest? And then what happens is a group of people comes up behind me. Well, I've got the river now, right? I've got the creek and the water in it. So now I start selling what I found. Okay. Now it's really nice to stop at base camp because I can mm-hmm. get rich off it. Okay. Now that's one, that's the compromise of principle. That's where you, you, you aren't even going to continue to seek your goal. But the other compromise is I'm going to stop at base camp and I'm going to get based. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to get my stuff that I need to climb again. That's right. And, and that's, that's right. just accepting your mortality and accepting circumstances. I'm all for that. Nobody, there is not a single classical school in the world today that, that Erasmus would consider a good school. Right. Wow. I am okay with that. I'm okay because it's that. that base camp idea. I get it. They're on their way. Exactly. That's really beautiful. And so That's what really we need beautiful. to do is have enough faith to put together a classical school to the degree that we can and then equip so the next group, the next generation can go to the next level. Right, but I so will say this, that what generates it, what motivates it is Christ, right? What, That's what my question. Modern, I got it. Modern, I got modern education. Right. Sorry. I want to throw this question at you on that. Okay. Could I? Could I? Real yeah. quick. I saw you threw me for a curve there in, in a way that I should have seen. Four parents, let's say four couples, let's let's say ten couples. And the ten That's couples have come together. I'm picturing Chicago because I got a friend there that would say this. And those ten couples say, you know what? We have faith. This is something beautiful. We have faith in the spirit of creativity, which it resides in all of our children and every child. And we want to create a creative school based on the faith we have in in the creative element of, of human existence. Is yeah. that enough to start? That's a good class- place to start. Could that community apply your classical studies concepts? And would you have, would you have some sort of modicum of hope that they, they could be successful? Oh, yeah. But they're oh, not yeah. Christ. They're not talking about Christ. Okay. I would say it this way, that, that Christ, is, Christ is opposed to absolutely nothing that doesn't oppose him. And so Christ is not 
the opposite. Like there's, there, we don't live in a manichae universe. Right. Right. This Although is, people this, want this, to. This, <laughs> people do it. Well, it's convenient. It's easier, except you can't get anywhere. Right. So, so if you're dealing with today's Could you problems, tell the media this? Can, let's, uh, let's, do, <laughs> let's talk to the media next, whatever they are. Let's well, see, 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 that's the thing. I talked about deliberation earlier, right? And, and the, what we've seen in America is a collapse of deliberation. And it's at the school level and it's at the political level. Who knows yeah. where it came first? I don't know. It, it came first from believing that there's good and evil and I'm good. Right. It's not like that. There, we are all a mess. And we are all created to love the good, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so whether it's we're going with Maximus the Confessor and Nicholas of Cusa, or mm. or the bag, you know, the the Vedanga or whatever it's called, the, the the everybody is Augustine. Everybody is created to love the good, and consequently, if you seek the good that you are capable of perceiving, then you are whether you mean to be or not, you are moving toward Christ. Yeah. And if you are and if you are moving toward Christ, then we should celebrate that. And then at some point, at some point, you might keep on moving and, and suddenly realize, wow, there's Christ. Right. There, there's there's no guarantee of that. That's between God and the person. Yeah. But what I'm really getting at business. is this. There's a pardon. It's not really our business. I mean, it's our business, but it's not right. really our business that that creative group of Chicago and classical education pursuers that they also find Jesus. I don't really get that that that's connected that way. It doesn't have to well, be connected. Well, yeah, there's two ways to think about that. One is that the name Jesus, and the other is the person Jesus, right? What I want them to find is the person Jesus, mm. and what what a what a what a person who's looking for the conversion is is wanting is that they they name Jesus. And look, the, the Lord tells us there's no other name given among men. So I'm not going to minimize naming, but it's but it's the name of a person, right? And it's and it's more than a person. Even there, it's when I say person, I don't mean somebody you can be on intimate terms with only. I mean a person who governs the cosmos and whose being explains every other being, yeah. right? Who who is the he is the he is the he is the logos that makes analogos possible. Right. The reason, for example, Jonathan Peugeot talks about hierarchy, the reason he can talk about it, the reason he can. We didn't even talk about the temple, which is absolutely my obsession. Right. The reason why existence is knowable is because Christ is in it. Right. And he's manifesting himself to it, to us in it all the time. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right. And that doesn't just mean that when you look into the sky, you go, no, it's actually saying something. There's a message that's being proclaimed, but we're deaf. Yeah. Right? We don't know how to hear it because we're so hung up on enlightenment thought. But it doesn't need to be that way. We can hear the creation speak to us, and it speaks to us formally. It speaks to us about relationships. What do you guys do with origin stories then? Origin, not, not, not the theologian. Origin. How do you... It feels to me to do what you're doing, classical education, there has to be some sort of coherent origin story that's told within the yeah. community calling themselves educators. And the huh. origin story of evolution, how, you must Oh, not, you mean the, the origin story of mankind? Yeah, like, like yeah. right, you know, like did we yeah. come from Ragnarok or wh where did we come from? It feels like the community that you're talking about that adopts classical education, they have to have a coherent origin story. Could it be evolution? So that's a that's fun. Okay, so I would say this that that the people who adopt classical education are many and varied. 
And so you've got secular classical schools, you've got um, um, progressive people doing classical education, you've got Muslim classical schools now, you've got uh, evangelical, reformed, Lutheran, you've got all kinds of, of different variations. And one of the things that distinguishes each of them would be something like their origin story. Right. And so so if you are if you are a, a Thomistic Catholic, you're either going to be a neo-Thomist from the 20th century with a very rich conception of the dignity of human nature and so on. Or you're going to be something like a, a two tier Thomist from the early 20th, late 19th century, where where you're going to have this dark view of mankind. And you're kind of, I would say you're going to go into something like Manichaeism. And if you do, if you, you, you could do both of those, right? You, and you could, you could fall under the umbrella of classical. So the, so the question that everybody's constantly asking is, what is classical? And what I would say is this, that what classical isn't is an education that's, that denies human nature, that denies there's such a thing as human nature, okay? What classical isn't is sophistry, although there was sophistry in the classical world. It's not relativism, right? What right, classical right. is, is it's logocentric. It, it acknowledges that there is a logos, and yeah. that is the ultimate origin story, right? The RK, NRK, in the beginning, in the first principle, in, in the, the beginning of all, was the NRK in logos, right? There, Christ is the origin story. And, right. and everything, literally everything flows from his being. And so Dostoevsky the origin says, story. Dostoevsky says, he says, art. now he doesn't, he doesn't say classical education. It's the same idea. He says art, all art and all artists have to start from the idea that there was nothing and then there was something and there's meaning in the something. And That's exactly right. The word meaning is so important. Logos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, because you. in that great inversion, that notion that we lived in a meaningful world was overthrown, right? That that cosmos became chaos and meaning, it's just a machine now. And so you stand outside it and you observe it, and now knowledge has become impossible. You only can have this externalized analytical knowledge about wow. something, but you can't participate in the being of anything. And that makes you lonely. It makes you fragmented. It makes you not a good friend. It and, breaks and down we've the forgotten, world around you. It, it wipes your mind clean. It takes me back to your idea of the vigil keepers. Mm. There's somebody, you, that has keeping this vigil, this, this classical education mm. vigil, which is really just, mm. I see what you're doing now. Classical education is not classical. It's a code word for logocentric being. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's, that's how I perceive it. Now, again, I'm I'm one person who identifies with the classical tradition or with classical education. So other people will have different definitions and understandings. Sorry to create chaos, but that's definitely how I see it. And that's because I begin with the Christian classical education. My computer, for some reason, does that ridiculous thumbs up. I like no that. <laughs> I, I, I just said something I like. I'm going to let you know I like that. <laughs> Andrew just liked himself. Yeah, like, I'm doing a great job. <laughs> and then his thumb appeared on his screen. <laughs> uh, that's very embarrassing. Do you, what do you think of Marcus Aurelius? Uh, how does he fit into it? Because I think for many people outside of maybe your Circe, he seems to be something like a father of classical education or something as a Stoic. Is that is well, relevant Stoic. to your story? So the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius is the fourth 
third century AD. So he's 700 years, 800 years after the, the, the golden age of classical. Yeah, he's late. I get it. He's late, late, but. And he's also in that transition him. period. Sorry. There's something about him as told to me when we were trying to, that his process, he was trying to save the Roman empire from a type of meaninglessness, right. a vanity. Right. And that right. something he was trying to do was to re-infiltrate what he thought was a really good corpus and, and do it in a way that he, Rome could be Rome again. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but it has a similar pattern. It has a similar pattern. Well, okay, good, good. That's great. Because, because the distinction I would make is, is well, I have Christ is the, the biggest distinction, but the, right. the distinction I would make philosophically is Marcus Aurelius was a, a, a classic Roman in that he was trying to preserve something that was already built. And he was trying to, um, he was trying to um, codify it so that by thinking about it like he did, you could have a renewed civilization. Yeah, there you go. But he didn't, he couldn't give the gift of the Holy Spirit, for example. But what he could do is he could give people who are dealing with lots of pain means to do so. Mm. And he could help them discover that there's meaning in their pain, right? So, so Marcus Aurelius is a really good example of what I mean when I say Christ only opposes what opposes him. There's a lot of wisdom in Marcus Aurelius's writings because it aligns with the Logos. But as soon as he differs from the Logos, he's now spoken. That's right. He's, he's spoken um, inadequately. Mm -hmm. But there's a massive difference between speaking inadequately and speaking like you are an unregenerate sons of the son of the devil, like I once heard a rock band called. You know, you you are you are just. We're all groping, Paul said. We're all groping. And Marcus Aurelius um, lived at a time and had a disposition and a character that, that, and had good mentors who led him to see some really great manifestations of the imminent presence of Christ in the cosmos yeah, yeah. And, in the, and in the soul. And so we should embrace those things, but we mustn't become, as a Christian, Right. We mustn't, we mustn't, we must embrace them, but we mustn't become stoic, right? There, there's things that stoics do that we should learn from, but, but I'm like, I'm not a stoic Christian. My goal isn't to become a stoic Christian. My goal is to be a Christian, but in the degree to which stoicism can help me understand Christianity, I'm yeah, all for right. it to, to help yeah. me understand Christ. And let me say in response to that, to what I just said <laughs> really quickly. I cannot even begin to describe for you how much Homer has helped me understand the Bible. Yeah. I cannot even begin to describe it. And I'll add this. The book of Hebrews is a response to the Odyssey in part. Why? Explain that. Well, because in the first line of the Odyssey, this is one evidence here. Um, the reason you said why. So the reason is because it's being written to Jews and Greeks, right? Because any Jew in the first century was a Hellenistic Jew, so that's all there was. But so it's being written to Jews who are in the Greek tradition, right? And it's speaking to them as though they're Jews and as though they're Greeks. But what the first clue for me was this: in the first line of the Odyssey, Homer begins by saying, "Sing, goddess of the man of Polutropon." Polutrop. 
which is an utterly untranslatable word. Pick up seven different copies of the Odyssey. They will all translate that line differently, which mm -hmm. is brilliant on Homer's part because polotropon might well mean many meanings. <laughs> oh, itself. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So tropoi can mean transformation. It can mean changes. You might read Sing Goddess of the Man of Many Twists and Turns, the Man of Many Journeys, the Man of Many uh, Tricks, right? It could be, it's, there's all of those are right, right? Okay. So, so if you read the Odyssey and every, everybody at that era who got educated memorized the opening of the Odyssey and maybe the whole Odyssey. Okay. So, so then you turn to the book of Hebrews and the first verse says, having spoken to the fathers, in the prophets, through the prophets, in many portions and in polotropon. Now, and in many that might that might just be a coincidence. And I, at first, that's what I thought. I just kind of chuckled and went on. But over the years, I've thought about it and I've looked, I've watched, I've you know, explored the Book of Hebrews, and almost the entire book. If I'm a Greek in the first century, as well as I can understand that line, I can read the Book of Hebrews and it is talking straight to me. Right. And, and that's the first one. He says to the, you know, in, in Corinthians, Paul says, Jews, uh, Greeks seek for a uh, uh, Jews seek, seek for a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. OK, so he gives signs and the book of Hebrews is signs for the Jews, the, the, the altar, the tabernacle, everything signs. Right. Meaningful mm -hmm. signs. Mm -hmm. But he's also got riddles in there for the Greeks. And so, so that's that's Greeks just love indirect communication. They love the Odyssean, you know, hiding things. And so in the very first line, what, what, what the author of Hebrews, I believe, is saying to the Greek reader is, Odysseus was great, Homer was great, Christ is better than the angels, Christ is better than Moses, Christ is also better than Odysseus. But he doesn't come right out and say that. He says it to a way the Greek mind is going to go, oh, that's cool. It's the same, that's the idea, which very, it comforts me, which is, if you're not opposed to Logos, then you're part and parcel of the answer. But where you become opposed, you actually become diabolos, you become against right. that which is is whole. And that, right. that really is, I think, a description of progressive education today. It's probably oh, yeah. actually against, right? That's what's happening. 400 years now, it's been diabolic. It's been div divisive. It's been fragmenting. The European mm -hmm. mind collapsed. If you want to see the European mind in its full realization, you got to read Hamlet. If you're wondering why can't Hamlet act, just look at all the issues he has so to deal great. with. So passive, and it's yeah. you can't. If you actually try to get into Hamlet's mind, you will realize there's nothing this guy can do. He is one of the greatest heroes in all of literature for the very fact that he was at the end willing to die. He nobody else has ever had to deal with as much as he had to deal with in all of literature, except Christ. And so, in the, the classroom, this. In the classroom, in a classical classroom, wherever that is, maybe on this internet right now between you and I, that whole conversation about Hamlet can take you wherever you need to go, and there's no exam that ends the day. Or what do your exams look like then? And how do you how do you how do you put your parents at ease with the outcomes? Well, again, we have to compromise. The grade. You, you, here's a question you'll love. Can you tell me when the first written essay received a number grade? I really do like this. I want to try to guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to go around the time of Dewey, but I'm probably way too late. 
you're a bit late. <laughs> it was it was 1792, I think, was the year, late 18th century, Scotland, University of Edinburgh. A professor decided that it was too hard to 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 just deal with all the instructions, so he so he, he did what the Scottish Enlightenment did. He quantified it. And from that, that day to this, I ask you, has writing improved or disimproved? Just toilet. <laughs> now there's been a lot of good writing so don't don't misunderstand me there's been a lot of good writing but it's never come from grades right no, if you no, want to no. become a good writer Correct. you go to a writing workshop and and you have you have a, a creative master model for you coach you you get apprenticed okay classical education has always been an apprenticeship by a master teaching a, a, an apprentice and then a journeyman. In other words, it's like discipleship, okay? But what happened is after the 18th century with the enlightenment in Scotland and then the industrial revolution, systems took over. And if, if, you, if the cosmos is a mechanism, then schools have to be a mechanism that reflect the cosmic mechanism, right? And so we needed to, we needed to quantify everything and we don't trust people, you see? We don't trust the teacher. Well, how, part of the reason for that is because what I said earlier, 1951, there's too many. And then and then it's too many people had to learn how to teach too fast and teaching that you can't learn how to teach fast. And so then what happens is you start having these colleges that replace the normal school, right? You get all these, these, well, here, let me just say education departments don't know what education is. And, and, I, and I say that because one time I was talking to a group in Ohio and after three days, three days only of teacher coaching, of teacher development, just three days of teacher training within the school. At the end of it, a lady who got her PhD in education from Ohio State said these words to me. You just taught me more in these three days than I learned in my entire career and my entire education at Ohio State. Because they don't know what education is. No. Literally, they don't know what it is, but they use the word, right? And part of the reason for that is because they live in an age that it's about words. Words don't mean, right? We have to reconnect words to logos, with nomen to logos. We have to reconnect That's the right. words that we say to the things we're talking about. I like to put it this way. You and I, when we speak, we speak mimetic logoi. We speak imitative words. Mm -hmm. When God speaks, he speaks creative words, right? He speaks created logoi. And the created logoi are the things. The mimetic logoi are the names. If you lose the idea that God spoke the tree into existence, you really don't worry about your language. But if you That's worry, right. but if you believe that God spoke the tree into existence, now you have to name it rightly because your, your naming it is going to affect it and it has to wow. be loving. Wow. And then to go back, just two ticks right there. The name that I give it has relevance and meaning because I gave it. It's not, it's not really relevant to reality as it exists in God. If if God didn't speak it into existence, what difference does it make what language you call it, I call it, as long as it's in accordance and in alignment with what I believe? Because in the end, yeah. I'm the ultimate arbiter. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But that, it's I pragmatic. used to think of it's pragmatic. It's all, all pragmatic. And it's also weirdly tribal. In other words, oh, yeah. it's really just relevant to the, the very smallest of, of you know, organisms or, or societies. And that's why I don't, I have a question for you because gosh, you're the right guy to ask for this. There's this egalitarian push 
Have I answered oh. any of your questions yet, though? No, it's we just talking now. By the way, usually my questions are so t they're so open ended that no people always say to me, "Well, what's the question?" I, you're doing great. <laughs> we, we don't no, have to go you. down there. Right? Here's my here's my my question. There's this for me as a teacher, and I taught a long time in the South Bronx and mm. Harlem. And God bless you. I taught kids. I taught kids coming out of what you know non-classical neighborhoods let's put it like yeah, that yeah. In, in terms yeah. of their the relevance to the to society we think of as classical and classical here meaning not white or black but rich or poor because i think yeah i would like to talk to you about rich and poor as a type of it's a code word in classical education that these are wealthy people i know you're changing that i know that's not those aren't synonyms but let me just say this there's an egalitarian push in the bronx in the 90s to get everybody an equal education. And I know that starts with Dewey. Dewey's definitely doing that. And and he, he wants to, everybody to access this thing, this special system that allows, you know, all the beautiful things in life. Is the egalitarian impulse, does that have to, to die for our systems of education to become better? And do you worry about that? Do you worry about that? depends what you mean. Um, I don't, Education can't be done at the scale we're trying to do it in America, hmm. right? So, so, so the, there, there is a, an illusion of localism in the American school, where you can have school boards, you know, have arguments about specific things, but basically the system is the same everywhere, mm -hmm. and. A, a lot more money goes into the rich suburbs because it's property taxes, right? Which is another example of what I mean by the system just doesn't work. It's disaster. Right? Don't get me started on that. I can go a long time on that one. Yeah. This is, this is what I think about the e equality issue. We will always have the poor with us. I have an un really great authority that that's the case. <laughs> I love the idea that everybody should have access to the beautiful things. Okay. And, and Dewey, you know, he, he, in his lab school, he did have kids studying Greek and Latin, for example, we, we would look back at what Dewey actually did in his school and call it classical. Yeah. We call but it, it had different, for sure. mm -hmm. but it had different uh, moral and intellectual foundations. And so it, it never took, but a system got put in place. And this is, this is what I believe is, is when people bear responsibility for the decisions they make, they make better decisions. Okay. They learn things and they make better decisions. When you can blame somebody else for your decision or transfer the consequences of your decision to somebody else, you will make bad decisions. The goal of the American education system is to make sure that whoever makes the decision doesn't have to pay the price for it. Yeah. And so what you do is you create administrative structures and managerial tools that ensure that you have abstract, big sweeping abstract decisions on a, on a, you know, a massive scale. And then the person who makes them gets gold plated yeah, wins protected. awards. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's protected. Yeah, and and I, I've I've actually said I could I could I could go into a school and destroy it in five years and be praised to high heaven for it, just by quantifying everything. There you go. Right? Just by yeah, just by putting in places, and everybody would love it. They'd think, oh yeah, it's so exciting, and I could use the buzzwords and everything. And people just love that because they're scared, and the buzzwords make them feel comfortable. They make them feel located. Wow. So let's replace the buzzword buzzwords with meaningful words. And then let's return responsibility. Let's turn accountability to the decision maker. Okay. So a teacher who is teaching well, you're going to see fruit from that teaching. And that teacher should be rewarded for it, but not rewarded by the city of New York. That's way too far away. Yeah. Maybe, you know, it's just like kids. What's the reward kids want the most? Nice job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. they they want you to look at them in the eye. You know what everybody's dying for, John? I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you the secret to human race, to the human race. Everybody would give their souls to hear these words from somebody they respect. Well done. Yeah, man. That's also biblical. So you have to earn... You have to earn the right to assess another person for his work. In other words, you have to have their respect. This is true between husbands and wives, parents and children. Yeah, there you go. Bosses, everybody. You have to earn the right to say to a person, that was well done, or fix that. But if you, but if they're laboring and striving to get that well done for you, they don't care how you give it to them. You might put a crown on their head. You might say, sit at my right hand. You might say... Go out and play. You might say, this is yours. Freely enjoy it. You might say, um, this is really good, but you should work on this part here. Right. But if but if the goal is that everybody wants things well done, okay, then you're gonna see more things well done. Now, what I'm not doing here is I'm not being utopian. No system could make this happen. And here's the irony. The only way what I'm talking about here, there's two ways what I'm talking about here could spread rapidly. One is that a few people could do it in some place and it would prove itself. And then other people nearby would see it. Right? And that is happening in the classical renewal. I think when so. I went to my first classical conference, I think there were 67 people at it. That was the whole classical world at the time, practically. 1993. Now there's thousands, tens, it's all over the world, right? It started yes, it like nothing. Okay, so when people when people see something well done, they respond to it. Okay, the other thing that could bring that world into existence is if this catastrophe of a system actually collapsed, and that would be terrible because because a lot of people would suffer, parents and children. But if every teacher in America, no, I don't even think like that. If a teacher is listening to this talk and wants to th- see the world change, wants to see education changed right? Then what I would say is this, in the classroom, the co-op, the home, wherever it is you're teaching, take full responsibility to make sure that the child in your classroom is getting the best education that you can possibly give to the best ability, to the best of your understanding. Just do the best that you can do. And in each child in your classroom or in learning and whatever it is, in your learning setting, make sure that each child is hearing you say well done in some meaningful way, some way that means to them, well done, right? You know how there's love languages? Yeah. Okay, there's honor languages too. People hear well done differently. 
Okay. No doubt. Figure out what kind of honor a child responds to and not to manipulate them and not to flatter them because the Bible absolutely condemns flattery. It's one of the most wicked things you can do precisely because our souls are so hungry for honor, hungry for honor. But Did if you, you figure just describe out what, self-esteem education, was that self-esteem education? Well, I think said? it's a corruption of it. I mean, you know, some people disaster. make good use of it and some people it's not manicky, right? But yeah, that's the corruption. That's, 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 when, what, as soon as you turn it into a formula and a system, it's bad, right? It's I mean, bad, yeah. The soul doesn't like those things. It's manipulative. But if you actually figure, and again, this has to be the individual teacher. Look at the children in your classroom and ask yourself, what kind of honor does that person respond to? And give that person that kind of honor. And then watch them, because the Bible says, give honor to whom it is due. Find reasons to give them the honor due them, okay? And then... When they hear you say, well done, which is a, what I mean by honor, that's largely what I mean by honor. No, even before you say, well done, you're always honoring them, right? Then make sure that they're fully accountable for the work that you're giving them to do. If they're not accountable for it, why are you giving it to them, right? That's the question right. I would have. Right. So make sure they're accountable. And what will happen is that eternal soul in the seat in front of you will be nourished. And your eternal soul will be nourished. And after that, God could do a miracle if he wanted to and change the whole country. But that's up to him. Right? What he won't do, as it says in James, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Yeah. And if we're concerned about egalitarianism so and equality, the one way we're not going to get justice, the one way we're not going to get equality in any meaningful sense is through anger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's only love. But if we actually believe in the power of love, which all our pop songs sing about all the time, but if we actually were would come to believe in the power of love, which gives honor to whom it is due and nourishes the soul of each particular person, right, then the world would be changed. And we've seen that over and over again in, in the history of the church. That's just that. That last part to me resonates as a teacher, former teacher, mm -hmm. uh, teaching now too, but differently. All right, last question, then let's finish up. Otherwise, Andrew will, he'll just chop he'll it into three pumpkin. parts and make it three podcasts and it'll just be <laughs> Andrew all week long, all day. Oh but no. This has been fantastic. By the way, this will be Thank another, you. let's do it. We'll do another conversation for sure. Yeah, lots. Um, I can give you, I can We're give you friends. a lot of. Yeah, we'll do it. Well, I'll see you again, too, at the conference, which we'll put all the links to what Circe's doing this year. There's a national conference. There's a couple of regional conferences. We'll put that Thank in you. there. I'm going to I'm going to speak at one of them. I'm, I'm excited that you guys are have turned out to be a real blessing in the latter half of last year, just meeting your son. And it's been beautiful. I, a quick I last question. Matt, just oh, yeah. 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 I've met my son, too. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Well, I meet him on, on, on online. I've I've, yeah, I've met him on the phone and in that way, but I'll see him soon. He had well, a baby. He makes right? me very proud. He makes me very proud. That's good so dude. I'm glad you met him. Very good guy. Um, so this book's going to come out, and the inversion is what you're going to tell us about. Thank goodness. I've been talking about the, if you go back and listen to all our podcasts, you're you're talking about education and the inversion, and I'm talking about culture and the inversion and and what mm. happened, how the enlightenment it. It, where it was good, fine, it produced material yeah. wealth, but where it was bad, it was really bad. So yeah. um, uh, here's my question, and we just go quick to it. How does the inversion end? Like, 
it's going to on some level. If you had to guess, what would these schools, what do they look like? Like, how do they fall apart? Or does it fall apart? Or what do you think happens? So anytime you have what what I'm going to call a communist system or a, or a, or a socialist maybe system. But anytime you have a system that is full of people who aren't accountable for their actions, that system will expand as far as it can. And as it does, so it will suck energy into it like a black hole. Hmm. So when there's no longer any energy sources, it will collapse on itself. And the big, I've wondered for a long time, I wondered for probably 30 years now, how much longer is the public school system in America going to be able to drain America of its resources, push property taxes through the roof, uh, break down society, increase crime? How much longer is it going to be able to do that before it collapses? And when it collapses, will it take the country with it? And I think that Compared to 30 years ago, I'm much more inclined to think that it's just going to take the country with it. And if that happens, it's probably got quite a ways to go. It might be 50 or 100 years, it might be 10. But the other thing is within that system are microsystems that, that are catastrophically um, irresponsible. And those microsystems might start plunge, might start collapsing on themselves. I see. And and when like a canary in a coal mine, right? And when the microsystem, when the canary dies, when a canary dies, somebody around it is going to say, "Whoa!" And I do think we're already seeing that, right? So already in the '70s, you were seeing people pulling out of the schools. The homeschool yep. movement is a rejection of the public movement more than anything else. Mm-hmm. The the charter schools is a rejection of the of the system, right? And so the, the system is already, it's a, the question is, is it spinning things out by centrifugal force? And We're then they're going to try to in, exist independently. And will they be able to, or, or is, it, is it such a powerful death star? <laughs> is it such a powerful black hole that you really will not, none of us will actually be able to escape its tractor beams and we're all going to get collapsed into it. And to me, the issue is the more faith the more rapidly exercised, the sooner we will be able to get away from that system and its collapse will do less damage. But I don't know how far along the path it is to to destroying the whole country. I mean, you know, the, the funny, this might sound absurd, but you know, what's funny to me is that John Dewey went to Soviet Union and he taught them how to educate kids and he put a system and he helped them put a system in place. After five years, they shut it down. They said, no, we're not going to do that here because the kids became just a mess. And, and, and I think it was 1935 to 40, but don't quote me on the years. But the Soviet Union, which Don, John Dewey was very fond of, the Soviet Union rejected progressive education because it was such a chaotic force. And in America, we embraced it because I, I guess because we like the future or something. I don't know. But it can't. But a, a, a nation can say no. That won't work here. Yeah, and we could do that. We could do you that. Could, we, I hear you. But I, the, the way you describe those alternative, really super destructive forces that are, you know, microcosms within the 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 bigger, uglier system. Those those, 
those Death Stars within the, the, yeah, those things yeah. scare me. I see them in especially oh, yeah. in big city education programs. They're so terrible, and they're also they're not helpful. They're really just trying to be mothers and fathers to kids at some point, and they're so they're trying confusing. to be they're trying to be um, nannies to kids, not mothers yeah, and fathers. They don't nannies. Love them. That's but thank you. That's that's right. the the um the the thing about that is that. Um, I guess it's what I said earlier that that it, it's going to come down to whether whether we can love the kids enough, and those forces that are so destructive only have power that's lent to them. They're parasites, and so if we can, if we can, well, first of all, I think everybody that's listening to this, if they have any opportunity at all, should try to get on local school boards. Right. One of the one of the great ironies of American culture is that Christians in the 40s and 50s decided that their politics was beneath them. And lo and behold, politics went against them when they pulled out. Yeah, that's right. What a surprise. Right. You, you got to get your hands dirty. And and for oh, this is what I was going to say. It's that love thing. What what bothers me the most isn't this you know metaphorical language of systems collapsing. It's not even that the country was, could collapse. What bothers me the most is that there's a kid who's a mile away from me right now who's cutting himself, herself, because, yes. because her life is so empty, right? What bothers me the most is that about a minute ago, somewhere in the state of North Carolina where I live, a kid just shot himself, right? What bothers me the most is that right now, somewhere in LA, there's gangs fighting with each other on a school ground. Okay. What bothers what bothers me the most is that right now there's a kid taking drugs because he can't handle reality, and the whole society is arguing about legalization of something that it, that that issue is so far down the line. Okay. What mm -hmm. bothers me the most is that I walk out of a Target in Denver and there's a kid there begging with a sign, and he looks like he's drugged out completely, and I ask him. Why, why are you here? And he said, my parents died in COVID and there's nobody to take care of me. He's 19 years old and he's got no life ahead of him and he's ruined. Right? That's what bothers me is it's, 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 it's forget the statistics. Every single one of those children in your classroom and in your home is an eternal soul. The value of that soul is eternal. And so are all these children who are suffering so intensely. Mm -hmm. There is an, unmeasurable value in that child that we want to we want to well when they're kids we feel sorry for them when they're adults we we get mad at them right let's yeah let's our, our society is melting down but that's because the people in it don't no but we don't love children we hate children in our society that's why we that's hate it. children we have Bad. sentiment toward them and the more we talk about how much we, we love them the more obvious it is that we hate them but as a society, we hate children. They're a nuisance and inconvenience. They get in the way of our careers. They get in the way of our lives. We abort them. We, we beat them. We sell them into slavery. We kidnap them. And, and, and when somebody makes a movie about it, we think it's an extremist thing. Right? How can yeah. you have a society that cares so little about children? Uh, because you have a society that have been taught that the world is their own thoughts. Like as an individual's thoughts is the world. And so why would I want to invest in somebody who's 
not me. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. That's what yeah, and the combination with that is we've been taught to despair that we're utterly helpless. There's nothing. Yeah, and it doesn't do help. It. You know, I, I'm ending now. We got to, otherwise I'm going to, but yeah. I got it. This is my beef that I would love to talk to you about. It doesn't help that we've been telling ourselves for 300 years that we're just animals and that we're a little right. bit more evolved. Could we stop that conversation already? It's another, con that's another thing we can talk yeah. about, but yeah. All right, brother. So, Seriously, we'll put in the links. Um, joy to have you on. This was fun. Thank you. It's been fun. I, I'm, I, I think I warned you. I can talk for a long time about a simple question. Forgive me. That's that's good for me. Um, my job is to get you to talk. You have the wisdom, and a lot of people will look at the title. You know, we'll, we'll make sure that it's classical education, and people like education podcasts because everybody wants to know what to do with their kid. And so, well, I, I, in that regard, I just really, truly hope that my sweeping statements aren't taken don't turn as parents off, yeah. particular and, 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 and that people don't feel like I'm attacking them, right? Every one of your listeners loves their children and also is frustrated with them. And that's normal. We all just yeah. have to keep on fighting. So please, if you heard me, you know, generalizing statements about parenthood and you felt like I was attacking you, please forgive me for that. I, I apologize. I, that's not what I meant to to say it all. Oh, good. Don't worry. If you noticed uh, two educators can go on and on and on, you might remember that about your own life. Like, not this teacher again, oh Lord, but it was, and it was good. I don't care what anybody says. Love listening to Andrew Kern. Check out the links. Uh, if, you're, if you're a homeschooler or if you're at home and your kids come home, and you want them to have an education beyond the education they had, check out their website. There are so many things there to talk about and to offer. It's a clearinghouse of really cool classical education ideas. And they're smart. Check them out, CRC Institute. Andrew will link it. www.first-things.org is our website. Consider being a monthly donor. I would like that. You're like, a donation to what though, buddy? Uh, we send people all around the world to immerse, learn local language, and then find local people who are deeply impoverished, trust me, deeply, and by living in a mud hut next to them, we can assess really good projects, and we move resources toward those people with really good ideas. Yeah, that's what we do, and our guys sacrificed two years of their lives to go do that. Please consider your support. I'll end with this. If you like candles, not candles, really good candles, like nice candles, the nicest candles ever. I don't know. They shine bright in your house. They're very beautiful. They're called Glassy Baby. Get Glassy Baby, and when you do, some of what you buy comes back to First Things Foundation. That's the kind of people they are. By the way, our color is green. Whenever you find the green on their website, that's, that's our color. That's the kind of Glassy Babies we get. So who loves you? Take care. Much love. See you next time soon on Heavy Things Done Lightly.